verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned after, aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to, his, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to His work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be His slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your King whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out and fight our battle and, and go out before us and fight our battles. Then Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in the hearts of Israel that resembles my heart. Lord, I pray You would help us 
see the foolishness of Israel. Lord, I pray You would help us see that You are a glorious King. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last March, uh, Scott and Dave, uh, Dan Mardian and Lawrence Secker, we all went to uh, California to the Shepherds Conference. Uh, this big conference uh, out in south of Los Angeles, uh, hosted by John MacArthur and his church, and it was a conference. It was called an an inerrancy summit. So it's a summit to defend the Word of God. To to be reminded that God's Word is infallible, it's true, it's been preserved. And throughout our week there, we got to hear some of the best speakers you can ever imagine. We got to get all sorts of books written on the Word of God and defending uh, the veracity of the Word. Basically, every resource you could imagine. It was in a setting where there's a bunch of other pastors and, and men who love the Lord, who love the Word of God. And one of the last speakers was a guy named Ian Murray. He's 84 years old. He's a British pastor and author. And at the end of his sermon, I'll never forget what he said. He said, listen, young men. He says, we cannot defend the faith by just words or books or even conferences. We need power from heaven. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power, as he quoted the Apostle Paul. And he said, if we are standing in a spiritual battle over the word of God, and it is not against flesh and blood, then we must have spiritual power. And then here was his conclusion. He says, that means we need to be humble, prayerful, and committed to the Word of God. And he said, young men, do not be distracted with secondary things, but with the main things of prayer and the teaching of the Word. All the things that were good about that conference an 84-year-old man from Britain stands up and says, America doesn't need a bunch more books written. They're good. And doesn't even need better conferences. But what it needs is Christians who will plead for the power of God to fall on the church of God, to love God's Word. And it stuck with me because I thought, how often in my life do I go with my skill and my energy and my ability rather than go to God 
Do I really think the power's in me or do I need God to help me? As I read this chapter, yes, I saw a transition from Israel being judged by judges and God ruling as king over them through the judges. Yes, this is a transition chapter, but the main point of this chapter is actually focused on Israel and their idolatry. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to see how when we look at Israel, it's like looking at a mirror of ourselves. And as we go through this chapter and consider the story, we're going to say, how stupid were they? And then in our next breath, we're going to say, how stupid am I when I act in the same way, looking for a substitute? Everyone loves a substitute, right? The starting quarterback goes down, finally! I knew the backup was going to be better. But then a few weeks go by and the substitute doesn't look so good, right? I remember as a child wanting a substitute teacher, you could get away with so much. It's in the human heart to think the grass is greener on the other side. If only I could get something better than God. So let's consider this story. It's interesting, chapter 7 is in contrast to this chapter. Chapter 7, Israel believes God. They don't have a king, but they cry out, Lord, You're our only hope. Samuel prays for them, and the Lord delivers them. Many years go by though. Many years since the Lord delivered them in that moment. In Israel's in a different place. Chapter 8 is in contrast to chapter 7, but it's parallel to chapter 4. Remember what happened in chapter 4? When Israel was defeated, they said, let's grab the ark of the covenant. Let's bring it before us. Surely the Lord will defeat our enemies. They're using the ark of the covenant of God as like a superstitious thing that's going to bind God to save them. Well, in chapter 8, they don't look for the ark. They look for the monarchy. Their hope is in a political salvation. But it's a salvation devised in the heart of man. And so, what do we have? Samuel's old. It says, he made his sons judges. This is unprecedented in the Bible. We don't know if we're supposed to see Samuel somewhat making a mistake here. Was Samuel supposed to expect his sons to be judges? He made them judges. They didn't walk in his ways. And Israel is looking at their judge Samuel at their prophet. They say, he's old. What are we going to do? He, made, he appointed his sons, but they're wicked. 
We can't trust in them. I mean, we might be able to relate to this a little bit. Man, our, our leaders, if they were only good, you start to feel this unrest. Well, what's, what's the salvation going to be? You have the Ammonites moving in. We find out in chapter 12 is one of the reasons they're asking for a king. The Philistines are always a threat. And they have a plan. Samuel, give us a king. But not just a king. A king like all the other nations. You see, Israel's doing it old school. The Philistines, they have a king. They have a political system that's up to date. The Ammonites have a king. All the nations have kings. And we don't have a king. Give us a king, Samuel. And Samuel is displeased with this request. So he asked the Lord, here's what they're saying. He said, and the Lord said, obey them. Give them what they want. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. He says, don't take personal offense, Samuel. I'm their king and I haven't been good enough in their mind. Even though I took them out of Egypt and have continued to rescue them throughout their lives, they've rejected me. They haven't rejected you. So obey their voice and give them what you want or what they want. But then he says, but don't just give it to them. Warn them with these words. And then he says, here's what's going to happen, Israel. God in His loving grace tells them what's going to happen with the decision they are going to make. He says it's going to cost you, Israel, your sons and your daughters and your fields and your crops and your harvest and your servants and your donkeys. He's going to tax you and you essentially are going to be slaves. God says, warn them with those words. Samuel goes to them and says, do you realize what you're asking? This is what it's going to cost you. And they say, no, we don't want to hear about this. Give us our King to defend us and to fight our battles and to go out before us. They want their King to fight their battles and to go out before them. And the Lord says, give it to them. That's what we have in this chapter. And what is in this that will be instructive for us? Why was it worthwhile to get out of bed this morning and come to church? How does what happened nearly 3,000 years ago have anything to do with your life? Well, I'm about to show you. So I hope you're excited 
to see the wisdom we could get from God's Word. And the main challenge I want to give you this morning is to hope in God alone and joyfully receive His holy call on your life even when it seems unreasonable to you. And I think that charge is going to make sense as we look at this text. So first thing that we can do in light of this passage, or we ought to do, is you ought to identify your misplaced trusts and anchor them in the eternal King. Right? He says, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me from being King over them. So there's been a rejection and a call for a substitution. Now, Israel didn't say, we want to reject the Lord, but the Lord says, this is what they're doing. This is what they want. They're rejecting Me, and they want to replace Me with something else. We read this, we just say, that's crazy. What human king could ever be better than Yahweh? Now, the first thing we need to point out is that I don't think it was sinful for them to ask for or desire a king in and of itself. We might think that at first glance, but we know written before this in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 17, here's what we read. Uh, starting in verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Moses says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, so they've done that, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you, now get this, from whom the Lord God, your God will choose. You see, when you ask for a king, like one from the nations, you may indeed have a king, but one whom the Lord chooses for you. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. He must not acquire many horses for himself. That's what the nations do. do or cause people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. You shall not acquire many wives. That's what the nations did. So them desiring a king wasn't the sin in and of itself, but it was desiring a king so that they could be like all the nations. You see, they didn't realize that they had a king. And that's what made them different and glorious and awesome. But what they wanted is to look like everyone else. To hear the praise of man. How foolish is it what they were hoping in? So, Their sin was taking 
trust in the Lord in trust in a political system, a monarchy. So they said, what's going to be our salvation is this system. You can imagine the talk in Israel. You know, the old men are sitting down to have coffee. What are they talking about? Yeah, this judge system, this doesn't work. The Ammonites, look, they just keep growing. You just picture what's going on. For years going over and over, our system is flawed and salvation is in a political system. If we could only have this. And we know from so many different texts in the Bible how foolish it is to turn from God to anything else. Psalm 118.8 says this, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in kings or princes. It's better. Psalm 146.3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Psalm 29 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. So, the Lord who was even over the flood way back in Noah's day sits as King forever and only a fool would put their trust in a prince that is only going to live for a moment and die. Can we all agree this is foolishness? To put our hope in man. But if we're humble and we're honest and we really look back into our own heart and we ask ourselves the question or we consider, where do I do this? How can I identify my misplaced trust that I put in something else rather than God? I think if you're like me, you'll find that we do this daily. Ralph Dale Davis said this, we have a tendency to assess our problems mechanically rather than spiritually. Our first impulse is to assume there is something wrong in our techniques rather than something wrong with our faith and trust in God. You see? Let's write more books, more conferences, more... Or should we pray? Or should we seek our own hearts in? Our first tendency is, okay, my technique's wrong. What am I... How long does it take us before we even think a spiritual thought to be led by the Lord, to find our hope in the Lord? And secondly, he says, instead of looking to God for help, we're more interested in prescribing what form of help His help must take. God, You need to help me this particular way. My way. Give us a king now like the nations. And the scary thing is that we see in this text is Yahweh will sometimes give us our requests the way we ask for them 
to our own peril. If you pray for something and you get it, it is not automatically a guarantee that you are being blessed. For the Lord says, give them what they want so they'll find out that a king, an earthly king, their king, can never take his place. Your business might grow. Your plan in life might be on track. And you might just say, God's blessing me. It might be just as likely if your life is falling apart and you're struggling that the Lord God is having grace on you if your hope and trust is in things that cannot be stable or satisfied. No matter what our hope is in. Notice Israel's request for a king in one sense, was perfectly rational. You know, our proposals and solutions can be completely reasonable and clearly logical, obviously plausible, and utterly godless. We can make total sense if we reason like the world does, and God can have no part in it. You know, we could do everything, and logic would say, yes, 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 yes. But if God's not in it, it's foolishness. And so point one is, we need to identify our misplaced trusts and anchor them in the eternal King. See, whatever else you put your hopes in, it's guaranteed to fall. If it's in a person, they can die. They can leave you. They can be gone. They will do you wrong. They're sinful. If it's in money, it can fly away like that. It can be taken from you. You could be sued. There's no security there. Where in your life do you say to God virtually like Israel did, I'm going to substitute you with this man-made calculated thing for salvation, identity, and hope. Secondly, not only shouldn't we place our trust in anything but God, we must also embrace God's call on our life to be different. You know, you read the word holy in the Bible, it could also be translated different. To say the Lord is holy, it means He's like nothing else. Whom can you compare God to? He's holy. He's different. You can't point to anything else and say God is like that person because He's holy. You can't take the greatest archangel, bring Him down in all of His glory, I know I've used this example before, stolen from Paul Washer. He said, what's more like God, the microbe in your toilet or the greatest archangel? The answer is neither. The archangel isn't anything like the God of the universe. He's holy and He's different. He's God. He created all things. Nothing created can be just like God. 
It could resemble, there are going to be aspects that show His glory, but God is holy. And what they don't like and what you and I don't like is we don't like to be different. Give us a king like the nations. How do you like being different in your call? What if you were to live your life with God as your king in every circumstance which would make you absolutely weird and odd in your environment? Can we all admit that we, like Israel, do not like to be different in our flesh? We like to be normal. How many of you like to be pointed out in a crowd? To stand up or to say something? No. You want to blend in, right? Teacher's looking for an answer to a question. Everyone's kind of, don't look at me. I'm just like every other. You know, I don't want to stand out. Peter, this was so strong for Peter that he was ready to give away the gospel. Paul came and rebuked him to his face because he wanted to be accepted by the Jews. He wanted to throw away the grace of God. This is essentially the path he was going down. Paul had to come to him, speak sense into him, and say, what are you doing? Causing people to have to follow the law when Christ has fulfilled this, Peter. Well, what would drive him to do that? He loved Jesus. He loved the Gospel. He's even an apostle. The desire to be accepted is absolutely so powerful that we're just foolish if we don't admit it. You might say, well, I don't mind being different. You know, I could say, I don't mind being different. I homeschool. I go against the grain. Well, yeah, but I might not. What about the homeschool groupies? You don't want to be different to them, do you? You You see, even the ones that dye their hair blue want to be different from them, but you see, they got a crew over here. They don't want to be normal, not have blue hair, because then they'll be different from the crew that matters. See, in our flesh, this is what we do. We need to find our hope in being like everyone else in the thing that made Israel absolutely glorious. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. You shall be, this is the Lord speaking, you shall be My treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is Mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A different nation. You're my treasured possession. Out of all the people in the whole world, Israel, you're a kingdom of priests. You're who I treasure. You're a different people. I made you different. I chose you. I loved you. Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. You shall be different. For the Lord your God, I am different. When Jesus Christ 
walked this earth, they cried out for a murderer in His place. Give us a substitute. Put Jesus to death. His own. I came to my own, but my own did not receive me. Jesus came for His own and they said, give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer. Let's replace the living God who came to save with a murderer. We don't like different. Jesus casts demons into pigs and they say, get out of here. Get out of our town. You're different. Peter's in a boat where the boat begins to sink because Christ makes him catch so many fish. And Peter says, get away from me for I'm a sinful man. Who is this? They're Afraid, they think they're going to die in a storm. They come to Jesus. Jesus speaks to the wind and the wind stops. And then it says they were very afraid. Who speaks to the wind and to the waves? But God says, you are different, Israel. And you are treasured and I am different. And so, I want to challenge you to not reject the very calling on your life. Embrace God's call on your life to be different. In order to do that, you're going to need to fear the Lord more than you fear man. Because as long as you want to please the crowds first, then you'll be willing to blend in and not be different. You have to, you have to see a big, holy, awesome God first. You just do. And so, finally, brings us to point three. So not only should we place our trust in God alone and embrace being different in the world, you know, we see it so is, so clearly when it's someone else, don't we? We just read about Israel and we just shake our heads and say, they're just fools. So we can see this and start to look in and say, okay, I need to, maybe I might be more like Israel than I like to admit. But finally, we need to destroy our resistance to any word that challenges our opinions. You see, in the heart of every proud person is the idea that says, I am right. Every single person thinks their views are the best views. That's what it means to have a brain and come to a conclusion. Whatever you think, you think as good as you can. And my challenge in this last point that I just think screams from this text is to destroy your resistance to having your opinion challenged. Where do, where do we see this? Clear as a bell. The Lord says, go tell them what's going to happen. 
They're going to take your sons. They're going to take your daughters, your crops, your servants, your donkeys. They'll tax you. You shall be slaves. But the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. Now, what is going on here? Why in the world when the Lord Himself speaks through their prophet, whom they know is a prophet, they're coming to Samuel to anoint the king? Why are they doing what seems absolutely ludicrous? In their pride, they're unwilling to have their opinion challenged. Even if it's the prophet of God speaking the words of God to them. And we say, we might say, I would never do that. But I think on further review, we would all admit that our pride makes us like fools. As we think too much of our own reasoning and not enough of the Lord's providential speaking to us through other people and through His Word. Now the world says this, if people are smoking and getting lung cancer and they're dying, we need to educate them. Education fixes everything. If only people knew, they would stop doing it. Well, listen to me. There is nobody who thinks that smoking is good for your health. And yet, many people smoke. So what's going on there? It's because education isn't the main problem. The main issue on the table wasn't that Samuel wasn't logical or wasn't truthful. You see, Samuel wasn't predicting that you're going to have an evil king. He says, let me tell you what a normal king does. Every king does those things. He wasn't prophesying, saying you're going to have some odd king that's going to be evil. This is what kings do. Your subjects under them And his high officials, he'll come to your farmland and say, I want that piece. Bill, here you go. You got it. That's how it works. That's normal. And that's what they're asking for. That's what Israel's asking for. You see, it's not knowledge, knowing the truth, that is the main thing. Really, it gets down to the heart of loving the truth. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, we read this, with all wicked deception, speaking about the Antichrist and his deception, for those who are perishing because they have refused to love the truth and be saved. They refuse to love the truth and be saved. You know how many people will go to hell knowing the truth? Especially in America. See, their issue isn't a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of loving the truth. It's a matter of looking at a bleeding Savior who proved His love to you and more than anyone ever could prove their love to you and looking at that and saying, I'd rather have this. See, knowledge isn't the issue. It's the heart that loves so what about the person? Isn't it right? Isn't it good to be, be confident in your own views, in your own opinions? 
Let me just rip some Proverbs off to you here. Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. Lord, what do you want me to do? You know, all your ways, acknowledge Him. But then He says this. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. And it'll be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Don't be wise in your own eyes and just go off making your own plan. That's what Israel was doing. Proverbs 16.1 The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. You see that? All the ways a man are pure in his own eyes, but you commit your works to the Lord. You go to the Lord. Or how about Proverbs 21.2? Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his heart. Proverbs 26.12 Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than in him. I don't know, if you tremble before God's Word, that ought to make you say, I'm willing to have my opinions challenged, to ask God to speak to me through His Word, through the church, through other Christians, to bring committees of people I trust around me and say, help me. My Bible tells me I can be deceived and I can be a fool going my own way. You know, tunnel vision. Proverbs 14.12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You see, there's no one who really thinks, or very few people who really think, I'm on the path to destruction. Hardly anyone who ends up in hell was on earth thinking they're living a life that gets them there. In fact, most of them have done a lot of really good things for people in the eyes of the world and were basing their hope in their good deeds. And the one who saved is the one who recognizes their sin and that they're not a good person and that they won't stand up before a holy God and says, I hopelessly, in myself, I have zero hope in myself, or someone else to save me. Lord, You're my only hope. Have You done anything for me? Yes. I've sent My Son for You to die for You. When You were yet sinners, Christ died. You know what that means? That means God doesn't receive You because of Your good works. It means He died for You when You were hating Him and rebelling against Him. So that Your salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God through faith, not of, your, not of your works. It's not your own doing. The fool trusts in himself. This is why we need each other, church. You have decisions to make. 
life's hard, difficult, what are you going to plug in to get you through the day? It can be something as foolish as chocolate. I'm having a tough day. Chocolate will be my refuge. Might not last long, but it's going to help a little bit. You know? Sports. One of my favorite radio stations, KFAN out of Minneapolis, the voice of the Minnesota Vikings, Paul Allen, is the announcer. What he continually says almost weekly is he says, I love sports because it's a diversion from the hardness of life. He basically admits life stinks. I don't have hope, but at least I have a good diversion a substitute rather than going to God to keep me from thinking about the things that really matter. What do you go to when you don't go to the Lord and try to find your hope there? It's as foolish as Israel asking for a king when God is their king. Here's the good news. God gives them a king that doesn't satisfy. Even David sins doesn't line up to what we would expect from a godly king. And even in the midst of their sinful, idolatrous hearts, what is God doing? He's working salvation for Israel because He promises from David's line there's going to be a king who is righteous and is good. He doesn't take bribes. He isn't going to take from you. He's going to give. The king you want, he'll take all the things valuable from you. The Lord of glory, the king of the universe, in his blood will give you all things according to Romans 8. Which king do you want to serve? Which king do you want to trust Him? What is going to help you shut your eyes at night and say, I can sleep even in the midst of this mess because my hope is in the Lord. My refuge is in the Lord. I'm weak. I'm failing. I screw up. I sin. But God saves sinners. And my hope is in the Lord. Father, my prayer is that we would taste and see that You are good. That we would see that You really are the fount of every blessing. Every other fount, every substitute fount will leave us empty, even though it may help us for a moment. You are the fount of every blessing. Father, we know that we can often find our hearts wandering away from You. Our hearts are prone to wander. So Lord, we ask You this morning that in Your grace, will You help us seal our hearts and our hopes in You. Not one of us here will ever be saved, Lord, because we're good enough. 
only those who recognize they're sinners and not good enough and look to You as their only hope will be saved. We know that's true. Lord, I pray that every one of us would cry out to You for help. That You would save us. That You would apply the blood of Christ. His life that we could never live. That it could be for us. Lord, we're going to end this service this morning singing praises to Your glorious grace. Because if You didn't send Your Son, we would be hopeless. We would be empty. There would be no hope after death. There would be no hope for bodies that ache and hurt and get sick. But all those promises find their yes and amen in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.